written to believers. Written to believers. This book is written to those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Therefore, this book is intensely Christian. Okay? This book is for you. Uh, as it was written to the church in Rome, uh, it's also written to the church at Bethel. Amen? So this book should have great meaning to you. And as we dig into just one verse today, and you know what that means, right? If it's just one verse, it's got to be short, right? You're right. Anyway, we're going to dig into this one verse, and I want you to remember, first of all, that God alone, Him alone, is the one who made our salvation possible. If it weren't for God, no hope for us. There would be absolutely no hope of heaven without the grace of God for us. Being saved from the eternal consequences of sin is purely an act of God. Now that being said, as we look into the verse that Brother Howe mentioned, Romans 8.28, I want you to see that this verse is so big, it's so monumental, it's so mind-boggling, it's so life-changing that you can't just read it with a superficial reading. you got to dig into this joker. You really got to strive and understand what this verse of Scripture means for you and what it means for the church here at Bethel. Pastor Elton Trueblood was a friend to many pastors or many presidents. He was a friend to Dwight Eisenhower, to Lyndon Johnson, to Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan. He even did the funeral for President Hubert uh, Hoover. But after the death of his wife in 1955, True Blood said, if I had to have all the Bible taken away from me except one verse in the Bible, I would keep for me at this time Romans 8, 28. Let me share it with you. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who who are the called according to his purpose. Besides John 3.16, Romans 8.28 is probably the most beloved, most cherished, most claimed promise in the whole Bible. And that verse is a good biblical promise for good reason. Because I think you would agree with me that life can be tough. Life can be difficult. This life we live is filled with trials. It's filled with trouble. And as I came back from church camp, just 48 hours or so of uh, being there, and I heard the testimonies of some from our young people, some from the young people of other churches, and I heard the things that our young people are going through these days. I can assure you that this life is difficult. It's wrought with challenges. But I pray that today, not only will our young people be comforted by this promise of God, but that you will be too. Because this promise truly is awesome, and it reminds us that everything is being worked out according to the glorious plan 
of God. So let's begin first today by looking at the confidence of God's promise. Paul's statement in that verse is kind of shocking. It's kind of shocking, but it's nonetheless absolutely true. Friend, listen, Scripture states this as an ironclad promise from God. This is one you can put in the bank. This is one you can put in your wallet and carry with you everywhere you go. This should be a promise that you should know by heart. And if you haven't memorized this scripture verse, you need to. God's reputation rides on this verse being true. This, this verse uh, is being manifested in the lives of every one of us. And you need to know that this is a promise of God. Now, God didn't say that all things are good. What did he say? He said all things work together for good. And that's important to know. This promise is as good as the God who made it. This is the promise of God. You can have confidence in this promise of God. Now, let's look now at the completeness of God's promise. Romans 8.28 does not say most things work together for good. That verse doesn't say that some things work together for good. That verse says all things work together for good. Now, you need to look up uh, some of these words sometimes because if you look up the word all in Webster's Dictionary, here's what you're going to find. The whole. The whole enchilada. The whole thing. The greatest possible. Every member, the whole number of, every, any, whatever, everything without exclusion. That's what all means. That means nothing in your life, nothing in your life, if you're a child of God, is happening that won't be worked together for good if you love God. Here's the fact. Everything in the life of the child of God is working together for good. That's got to make you feel good this morning. That's got to make you excited that everything's working together. Even the things you don't understand, they're working together for good. Even the things you don't like, guess what? They're working together for good. Even the things, friend, that hurt you, guess what? They're working together for good. You need to be comforted by this incredible promise of God. Let me share just a few areas where you might see God working for our good and his glory. The first one's kind of a common sense one. Sweet things work together for our good. Uh, think about it. It's easy to see in our life that sweet things work together for our good. When your home is peaceful, man, that's sweet, ain't it? When your marriage is Clicking, clicking along and everything's going good. Man, that's sweet, ain't it? You know, when the family's getting together and there's no arguing or bickering, man, that's sweet, right? I mean, when the church is going good and the Holy Spirit's filling us and using us mightily, man, that's sweet. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, it's sweet. You know, when somebody comes to Jesus Christ and they're saved, they're born again, man, that's sweet, amen? So sweet things we know work together for good. The stuff that makes life good, the stuff that makes us feel good. Man, that's sweet. Sweet things work together for our good. These are, in fact, the blessings of God. And the blessings of God, the sweet things, work together 
for our good. And they should cause us to want to be better Christians. I don't know about you, but if I start feeling a lot of blessings of God, I want more. Amen? I ain't satisfied with just a smidge. I want some more blessings. So I'm going to start living right. I want to be a better Christian, a better child of God, more obedient, more, uh, more service-minded, more others-minded. So let us thank God and let, let's rejoice in God for every blessing that we receive. And let's thank Him for the sweet things. Amen? Sweet things work together for our good. But how many of you know that sorrowful, sorrowful things work together for our good? There are countless examples in the Word of God where the sorrow of people or peoples uh, work together for their good and God's glory. Um, it happened to people in ancient times and it's happened to people today. It's happening now. It's happening in our midst. Uh, the author of Psalm 119, verse 71 says, It is good that I've been afflicted. Is he a sicko or what? It's good that I've been afflicted? That's right, but listen to what he continues to say. It's good that I've been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Right? So it's the, the affliction in his life, the sorrow in his life, that caused him to learn from God. That's good news. You may remember Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. Let me just share a little bit about that with you. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father Jacob was dead, they said, Joseph will hate us and actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. And so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, Before your father died, he commanded saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin." For the evil they did to you. Now please forgive the trespass of your servants. The servants of God. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and said, Behold, we are your servants, Joseph. And Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I capable of judging you? No. But as for you, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. Now Joseph went through it. Wrongly convicted, wrongly sentenced to prison. I mean, thrown into a pit to die. He went through it. He went through a lot of affliction. And now he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. There's another example uh, in the nation of Israel. There was a king, and his name was Manasseh. And listen to this testimony. I'm going to skip around a little bit in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. But Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. That's a young king, amen? That boy ain't got no sense, right? Anyway, he was 12 years old when he became king. But get this, he reigned 55 years. 55 years as king. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord permitted an evil king to reign over his people for 55 years. Why? God was up to something. Amen. God was up to something good for his people. Let me continue. Manasseh rebuilt high places which Hezekiah's father had torn down. Made wooden images and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, the stars. He built altars in the house of God. 
Whoa. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He caused his own sons to pass through the fires in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That was a, a part of kind of like a, a, a cult where these uh, parents would actually cause their children to walk through fire. This king was doing that. Let me keep on. Manasseh practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, used sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he made, in the house of God. Imagine if I did that. Set up an, an image in here for y'all to worship, right? I wouldn't last no 55 years, I promise you that. Verse 11, therefore, so after, after Manasseh pulled this stunt for 55 years, therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh with hooks. Now, you need to know what that hook is. That hook is a nose ring. They put that nose ring in your nose and they grabbed a hold of it with their finger. You can go anywhere they want you to go, amen? So they took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, with chain, bronze chains, and they carried him off to Babylon. Now here's the verse that's important. Now when Manasseh was in affliction, when the boy was hurting, when he was sorrowful, when he was really having a tough time of it, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. So it was affliction that finally got this man's attention. And he quit all that he was doing, humbled himself before Almighty God. Sorrowful things can work for our good. In fact, it's often in the valley, in the valley of suffering. It's often in the valley of sickness, in the valley of sorrow that God is able to get our attention and begin to shape us and knock off all the rough edges in our life. So you may be in the valley today. If not, maybe you're coming out of a valley of yesterday. Who knows, you might be heading into one tomorrow. But please know that God is going to use that valley for your good. If, say if. Yeah, that if is coming here in a second. See, when God always does this, it's always for our good and for his glory. That's important to know. He didn't say we had to like it. He didn't say you had to like being sick. He didn't say you had to like being sorrowful. He didn't say that you had to, to like the suffering. But he did say that you needed to be thankful for it because God's at work in the valley. I read that the eye that is with tears, sees the best. At youth camp and at VBS, I saw some tears flow. I saw some tears flow, and when those tears were flowing, people were seeing. They were seeing the truth. And change was caused in their life. So, not only do sweet things work together for our good, but sorrowful 
things work together for our good. But did you know that also satanic things can work for our good? Yeah, Brother Bill's gone off the deep end now, hasn't he? Amen. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, uh, Paul endured satanic attack, all manner of affliction, and God allowed it. Why? Because it was for Paul's good and God's glory. Check this out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he writes, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of my revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan. To beat me, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with God three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace, my goodness, my love for you is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So what did he do? He said, therefore, I'll most gladly will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me that I take pleasure in the infirmities and the reproaches and the needs for in the persecutions and the distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So certainly God can use the devil, amen, the devil to bring and work out good things in our life. He's so foolish, he doesn't recognize that God has all the control Right? So the devil goes about doing his business, but God's just up there laughing at him. Because God's going to take what he tries to do, and he's going to work it together for good to those who love God. But not only the sweet things and the sorrowful things and the satanic things, but sometimes sinful things work together for our good. Now listen up. Christians ought not sin. Period. We ought not sin. When you do, you will suffer. When you sin, you'll suffer. You'll either suffer discipline, you'll suffer loss. You may know it, you may not know it. But if you live a sinful lifestyle, I'm promising you that you will suffer. Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke. As many as I love, I discipline and can I tell you that sometimes that discipline lasts a lifetime? Be careful, Christian. Be careful, Christian. Don't walk in sin. And don't walk in a sinful lifestyle. Jesus said, therefore, be eager and repent. Be eager and quit it. Amen? That's what you can do about sin. Quit it. Turn away from it. So can God take suffering caused by deliberate sin and use it for our good? Sure can, but boy, it's going to cost you in the meantime. There's always a cost that's associated with sin. Do you remember Simon Peter? I was talking with old PJ at youth camp. And PJ brought it to my attention that every time that Jesus was getting on to, to Simon Peter, that's the word he used for him, Simon Peter. It's like my mom saying, William Rogers Barlow. 
He'd say, Simon Peter. Let me give you a little example. In Luke chapter 21, 22, excuse me. Luke chapter 22, in verse 31, uh, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, there we go. <laughs> Simon, Simon, what's your deal, man? Simon, Simon, indeed, listen, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Jesus said, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and even to death. And then Jesus said to Peter, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you, before you will deny me three times that you know me. scary territory scary territory but you know and I know that God used those that sinful behavior eventually to use Peter mightily for the kingdom of God God uses all the circumstances of life for our good you may not see it right now you may not see the good right now you may be so covered up with the suffering and the sickness you can't see past it but the comforting promise of God is it's coming it's coming Take comfort and rejoice in the completeness of God's promise. Now let me point to the cause of God's promise. Because these things aren't just working out for the believer by coincidence. This is just not a quinky dink. Amen? This is not just happening, oh goodness gracious, it happened. No, it's taking place because of the personal concern and the personal work of God. He is at work in the child of God. He is at work in our lives. So the cause of the promise is the awesome power of God. He is at work in our lives. He's the one doing it. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And he is completely able, friend, to take every single situation in your life and maneuver the things to work together for good. Everything. No matter how serious it may seem, he's able to do that. But you know, for you and I, it's easy to forget that God's in control. Sometimes we like to think that we're in control, don't we? How foolish is that? We like to think that we're in control of our lives. You may make decisions, but you ain't in control of your life. God is in control. How do you know, Bill? Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. All authority. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Remember what the angel said to Mary? With God, nothing is impossible. Job experienced the furnace of affliction, didn't he? Boy, he felt it a lot worse than any of us will. And yet, listen to what he said. He said, I know you, God, can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Listen, y'all. God's in control. And when you get your eyes off him and on your circumstances, you are in danger of falling. So we've got to keep our focus on God. You remember when Peter was walking on the water? Right? 
He's got his eyes on Jesus. He's walking on water. And then all of a sudden the wind kicks up and the waves start kicking. Right? And he starts freaking out about the wind and the waves. And what happens to him? He gets fearful and he begins to sink. Can I tell you, fear is a liar. Fear of the waves and the wind of life. It's a liar when you're keeping your eyes on Jesus. Because he's in control of the waves. He is in control of the wind. He is the master of the sea. And he said to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why'd you doubt? Don't you know I'm in control? <laughs> Don't you know I'm the master of the sea? Why'd you doubt? I read a story about the great Christian reformer named Martin Luther. Many didn't know this, but Martin Luther struggled with periods of deep depression. I mean, this is one of the strongest, most avid evangelists and men of God in the history of Christianity, and he struggled with deep depression at times. Well, one day, he woke up, depressed as all get out, and he came to the breakfast table, and he sees his wife dressed in black from head to toe like she's getting ready to go to a funeral. Luther asked his wife, he said, who died? And she said, God. And Luther raised his voice and he said, God is not dead. That's blasphemy. And then his wife said, it's no more blasphemy to say that God is dead than it is to live like God is dead. Luther got the point, do you? See, sometimes... Christians live like God's dead. We live like he ain't watching. He ain't with us. But God's in control. He's always there. He's always with us. So when life closes in on you, I want you to remember this. If you belong to Jesus, then God is behind every circumstance you'll ever face. Behind every circumstance. First, it had to go by God's desk. Right? Then it had to be evaluated with an internal vision to see if it was good for you or not. And if it was, then God gave it a stamp of approval and then it headed your way. So whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's suffering, or whether it's sorrow, it matters not. If it's received the stamp of approval and it's come to you, it's for good. It's for good. Now check out the condition of God's promise because this promise is not for everyone. This promise is only for those who love God. Now, if that's the case, then you need to know if you love God or not. Because if all things work together for good to those who love God, then the opposite must be true. It's not going to work out for good if you don't love God. If you don't love God, if you don't trust in his wisdom, then you're going to rebel. You're not going to trust God down in the valley. You're not going to trust God when those sorrowful times come, those satanic times come, those sinful times come. And so we need to work and make sure that we understand that we're, not, we're going to be denying ourselves many, many blessings. If we're not loving God. So how do you know? Well, are you saved? 
Are you saved? You can't love God unless you know God. We love Him because He first loved us, the Bible says. Are you obedient? Not only are you saved, but are you obedient? Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, He's the one who loves me. A sinful lifestyle and Christianity don't commingle very well. So it's vitally important that you learn to love God. And finally today, I want to point out the consequence of God's promise. Listen very carefully, y'all. Because this verse is not designed for your happiness. This verse is not designed to make you happy. This verse is not designed to be taken lightly. And we're going to see this in messages to come over the next couple of Sundays, but we're going to see that there's great purpose in God's great promise. God's got a purpose by making this promise. God's purpose in turning everything to good is not to bless you. God's purpose in making everything come out good is not to make you happy. It's not, friend, to make you wealthy. The reason that he works all things for good is to make you more like Jesus. And when that happens... God gets great glory. So if you're not feeling particularly blessed, particularly wealthy, or particularly healthy, don't blame it on this verse. Because God is trying to make you more like Jesus. He's not finished with you just because you're saved. He's not finished with you just because you came to Christ. He's going to continue to shape you until you reflect his image perfectly. See, the whole purpose of Romans 8.28 is to teach us that God has an eternal plan and nothing, say nothing, nothing's going to change that plan. For the child of God, he's going to make you more like Jesus. The question is, are you going to cooperate him in that process? For me, man, it took a whole lot of suffering. It's taken a whole lot of sorrow in my life just to get to the point where I'm at. And I'm so far from the, the perfection, it's not even funny. But nothing's going to change God's plan. He's going to continue to reproduce himself in us. So my question is for you. Is he seeing that in you yet? Is he catching glimpses of himself in you yet? Everything that he does as he reproduces his, his self in you, it's all good. Amen? It's all good. So are you saved? Are you obedient? Do you love God? You need to be able to answer that question before you leave here. It begins with salvation, being justified by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. It continues after you're saved by sanctification, which means that I'm just made more like Jesus day after day. And then one day, one day, praise God, we're going to be perfect. We're going to be glorified. And we're going to be just as He is. So is God seeing glimpses of Himself in you? Are you ready to start the process?
my heart's desire for you is that you won't walk out of this building unless you know the process has begun. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father God, I praise you and thank you for loving us like you do. I thank you for the most comforting promise in the New Testament. And Father, I ask you in Jesus' name, Father, to continue reproducing yourself in us. We want to be so much like Jesus, it ain't even funny. We want to talk like him. 